Hey friends, my name's Will. And my name's Hannah. And you're listening to the Spiritual Misfits Podcast. If you've ever found yourself on the fringes of Christian faith, this is a safe space for you. Your questions, doubts and hopes are all welcome here. We're creating conversations, affirmations, meditations and other resources to support you on your spiritual journey. And let you know that even if you feel like a misfit, you don't have to feel alone. This week on the pod, I am joined by Alexis Halverson. Alexis is an incredibly thoughtful, considered and philosophical human being. She is also a trans person of faith with a fascinating story that includes growing up in church, leaving institutional Christianity behind, and then returning and finding new beauty in old traditions. Alexis is involved at MCC Church in Sydney and has so many great ideas and thoughts to share. Before jumping into our conversation, we've got a couple of in-person events coming up and I want to see you there if it's physically possible for you. Uh, We're going to be at Newtown Mission in Sydney on May 13th. We're going to do a live episode recording and a meetup of misfits from 4pm in the afternoon with a launch of my new book of poems in the evening after that. Then a similar deal in Newcastle a couple weeks later on the 28th of May at the Rogue Scholar for our first pub theology in an actual pub. Links and details for both of those in the show notes. Go check that out. Uh, Finally, I know there are a lot more of you who listen than those of you who have rated and reviewed on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to bless my little podcasting heart, Go and hit us with a five-star review on one of those platforms. Then borrow a friend's phone and do it from that too. All right, peeps. Here's the episode. Alexis Halverson, welcome to the Spiritual Misfits podcast. Great to be with you this afternoon. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. I am still surprised and somewhat flattered that you asked me to come on. So thank you. Well, uh, some people might recognize your name. If they're in our Facebook group, you are um, an active contributor and recently a moderator. And um, the reason I asked you to come on is because I feel like the whole time you've been in the group, every time you post, I have to read it like multiple times because I'm like, this is a thoughtful, considerate human who has um, fantastic perspectives to offer that um, I think more people should hear. So you're very, uh, very worthy of being on the pod and I'm looking forward to getting to know each other a bit more in this chat as well. Yeah, definitely. No, thank you so much. Um, I don't know. I I just, I think too much. Um, So (laughs) I'm glad that that sometimes is, you know, useful and helpful to people and people think that it comes across, you know, informed and thought through. It's just overthinking produces that sometimes, you know, the good and the bad. Your overthinking comes out at least through your keyboard very eloquently. So I think uh, you should just own it. Maybe it's the appropriate amount of thinking. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So um, Alexis, like what does uh, life look like for you at this point in time? What's like a standard day or week in the life of uh, Alexis Halverson? To start with, like I'm Alexis and I use she, her pronouns. Um, and at the moment, I'm currently working as a software developer full-time. Um, 
currently working on medical devices for epilepsy diagnosis, which is quite cool. Um, other things that I'm doing include um, I'm involved with MCC Sydney, which is an LGBT affirming church here in Sydney. And um, what else do I do? I'm involved in community stuff. I try and make art. I think too much. And, um, and I've just been wrapping up a theology for lay preachers course through Uniting Mission and Education and getting more and more involved in MCC Sydney and in worship leading and doing a little bit of preaching and stuff there. So, yeah, that's been cool. Awesome. Um, well, we're going to chat about some of that stuff at least and um, definitely keen to chat about, uh, well, your own story, your experiences as a trans person of faith. There's there's stuff we want to talk about in terms of the shape and structure of church and what that might look like in the future and where we see positive stuff happening today. But as I like to ask everyone, um, share a little bit of your kind of backstory and when, if ever, you have ever felt like a spiritual misfit? I think I have almost always felt like a spiritual misfit. Um, I may, may, Maybe a very long time ago as a kid, I felt less like a spiritual misfit, less like a misfit in general. But to be perfectly honest, I think I always felt quite like a misfit growing up. Um, as a kid, my um, my family doesn't, isn't particularly Christian, like generationally, but my mother is a born again Christian and um, was sort of born again into evangelical culture and evangelical Christianity. Um, not long after my brother and I were born, I think. Um, and my dad is also like vaguely Christian. He's definitely Christian, but is far more of, he's also like an evolutionary biologist and a science teacher. And I feel like he he would definitely describe himself at different times, maybe not with the word spiritual misfit, but would understand that feeling. Sure. Um, so as, as a kid, grew up in quite conservative evangelical churches and that sort of thing, um, particularly country Presbyterian churches, very, very starchy kind of dour dirge-like hymns and that we didn't seem to sing because anyone enjoyed singing them or because singing was meant to be something enjoyable it was just something that you did um right and that sort of things like that and the fact that somehow all through that i connected quite a lot with christianity and the community aspect i would say of being involved in churches and that sort of stuff. And um, one of my best friends as a kid actually was the son of the um, pastor of our church, the minister. And, um, and I sort of, I was a very weird 12 year old in that I wanted to grow up to be a minister of a church, which I, I like, the, I think that was the weirdest thing about me until it turns out that, you know, I was a girl after all. Um, and then so just multiple reasons why I was just a weird ass 12 year old. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that can definitely put you outside of the, uh, the group of popular kids oh, <laughs> wanting to absolutely. be a, a minister as a 12 year old. 
Absolutely, definitely. What What were some of the things, you know, you mentioned that it was obviously a space that you were drawn to. Um, community was an element of that. But what else do you think were, were the, the positive elements of um, Christianity for you as a young person, even in a church where singing, for example, was just kind of something to be tolerated? What was it that, that drew you in and that even planted that desire to maybe be a minister one day? Yeah, I I think a lot of it came down to like the people who were allowed to ask and answer questions were church leadership, were elders and the minister and that sort of thing. It it and I liked asking questions and I liked thinking big thoughts and I liked trying to figure out, you know, what what God was, what um, what the meaning of life was, you know, all, all of those big questions that you sort of stumble into when you're a kid and you start to have develop a sense of self and that sort of thing. And I think beyond beyond the community side of it and feeling and very much having that sort of like in-group mentality and enjoying being a part of an in-group and it felt a little bit special being a part of something like that. Uh, I think wanting to be a minister or wanting to be a part of the leadership was about having some say in how things were running and what was happening because, again, it just sort of felt quite powerless at times, I guess. And and so mm. it was like, uh, oh, if I did that, I could do it in this way. And then I could ask the questions and then I could have the fun debates and that sort of stuff. So Right. So you mentioned that your weirdest trait swapped from being <laughs> the 12-year-old who wanted to be a minister to discovering, um, you know, that your your gender biologically didn't match who you were. Um, or I'm probably clumsy with the language there, but help me out if I say anything the wrong way. Um, but how how did that begin to emerge and and share a bit of the story of that realization in the context of um, being a church kid? Yeah, so I think I think I was already starting to um, I was already sort of starting to fade out of Christianity and uh, or at least the institution of Christianity and the institution of the church by that stage already, I was already asking a lot of questions about like why the people that I cared about the most weren't going to get into heaven and questions like that, that you sort of um, have to ask at times and Mm. what the purpose of hell was if God is meant to be love and questions like that. So I was already having issues with the institution and like my my best friend and his father who was the minister had moved away by that point and and I think that it was getting harder and harder to reason about and rationalize everything that was happening so and then and then with that sort of came puberty and realizing that something was weird and something was wrong um I didn't realize like uh, I didn't know any trans people and I didn't know what being transgender was or that that was something that could that you could just do until I moved away and went to university about 
17, 18 or so, and probably had a mental breakdown living on campus at university, which is always always the best thing to do as a country kid, um, moving to the big city, have a breakdown in your dormitories at university. But, um, but yeah, but sort of by that stage, I'd known I was queer of some description. I, I thought I was gay, maybe that sort of thing. And that just sort of compounded the growing questions I had about the institutions of Christianity and sort of evangelical theology and the and also like very Calvinist, like the emphasis was on, you know, was on hell, was on retribution, was on like being saved and that sort of stuff, um, which wasn't gelling very well. So, mm. yeah, that's that's sort of the first time that stuff crossed over. I was already on my way out, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then I wasn't really involved in, I didn't really have anything going on spiritually or religiously while I was going through the early years of gender transition and that sort of stuff. But I, I don't know. I, I, I found it very difficult to get rid of the notion of spirituality altogether. Um, I I think I always, um, like, uh, I'm reaching for the language which is most familiar, which probably isn't helpful to a lot of people, but a lot of people might also completely understand. But I never felt like I lost, like, a relationship to God, a relationship to the divine, that sort of thing. I -hmm. felt like I lost a relationship to christianity the institution if that makes sense so yeah totally yeah what did you um you know again the language is probably tricky in some of these situations but as you think about what that relationship with the divine looked like um through those years where it became i guess divorced from uh maybe a traditional spiritual community or a church um, what did it mean for you at that time or what did it look like? Like was prayer a thing or was there just a sense that um, the universe was a loving place or like what did it mean for you during that time of, of transition? Yeah, definitely. So um, prayer completely disappeared. Um, I, I'm sl- slowly regaining a prayer practice over the past couple of years, mostly around liturgical prayers and um and writing and reading like prayers for the people in church and that sort of thing. I still find it very difficult to pray unscripted prayers by myself. Um, sure. Yes. It, but it, in general, it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't so much that personal relationship with the divine, more just knowing that the divine was present in everything. Mm. And, very much sort of having a pantheist, the universe is God, the universe is so much bigger than I can imagine, it's so much more powerful than I can imagine, and just my, my, like, to, to put it in so many words, again, I don't think she would describe it this way, so sorry if you're listening, Mum, but I do think my mother's um, theology, like, the, the core of her belief is really on God's love, and, mm. and, God and therefore the world being at its core a loving place which it simply gets distorted by people or distorted by 
perhaps our inability to understand what's going on. Mm. And, and so I think having the sense that the universe was like so much greater than anything I, I could imagine and having this deep seated conviction that like the world is a loving place. The universe is loving that people are at their core, just want to care about one another and um, look after one another sort of kept kept what little connection to spirituality and connection to the divine going through that time and honestly as i transitioned and my politics became like further left and further radicalized um and i started discovering like you know far left political thinkers and that sort of thing in some ways i find that that fits quite nicely with the idea that people at their core just want to cooperate like these these hierarchies and these power structures that we create are they're they're designed to benefit a small amount of people and that if we start dismantling them like the risk of quote-unquote anarchy isn't like people are just going to murder go around like you know tearing the place down because there's no one with a gun to stop them like at, mm. at at their core human beings just want to live and live well and and, mm. and i think that yeah that sort of it it overlapped quite a lot in some ways and kept reinforcing one another yeah have you read by any chance the dispossessed by ursula k liquid uh yes i have i've or at least i've read half of it <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, I like it because it's a it's a classic sort of sci-fi picture of a an anarchist society that is um, that is working and is work, but is kind of um, a, a utopian version of that. Yes, um, yeah, compared to that, usually being quite a dystopian image. Yeah, 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 yeah. definitely. I I think it it definitely like my my read on it was that. It was impossible for like bits of what was happening with the Soviet Union to creep into um, the way society, the society is presented in the dispossessed. Um, mm. But but in, in general, uh, it was yeah, it was nice to have such a well thought through and well formed idea of what an alternative to our, our capitalist society could look like. Um, because it's yeah. so rare, honestly, to have mm. something so fully formed and fully realized is it like you know this is a lot of hard work and it's not perfect but this is an alternative yes we we tend to have a, a limited imagination yes, around yeah. alternatives it's, it's either just a, a stereotype of yeah capitalism or socialism one way of thinking about each and then anything in between <laughs> it's just very um very uh anorexic imagination we could say yeah um, definitely yeah yeah. So you, you found your way back in to, uh, you know, you're, you're doing a lay preacher's course. Um, you're quite involved. One of the things that has struck me about you in the Spiritual Misfits Facebook group is you've kind of commented around um, being someone who, who's not in ministry as such, but in some ways you are fulfilling some of the desires maybe of your 12-year-old self in terms of being a person who's, who's quite involved in that space, asking big questions, guiding other people, presenting a beautiful alternative way. How did you find your way kind of back into 
not so much a, an institution, but into organized Christianity. Um, how, how did that part of your story unfold? Yeah, definitely. Um, so uh, this is probably going to sound a bit silly, honestly, but um, I think I found my way back into Christianity and into institutional Christianity, in particular in some ways, out of like practicality, out of pragmatism. Um, I, I wanted um, sort of, when, when was it? And end of 2018, 2019, somewhere around there, um, I'd gotten out of a relationship with somebody who was um, quite put off by any of my um, feelings or thoughts around spirituality and around Christianity and that sort of thing. And I wanted to, now that I was out of that relationship, I wanted to explore that again and see what it meant for me. And it made sense to explore my spirituality and my connection to the divine through Christianity, because that's what I know. That's the culture I grew up in. That's the culture that I'm surrounded by, honestly. Um, Mm -hmm. I I think Australia is still quite a culturally Christian um, society, even, even though it, most Australians wouldn't identify themselves as Christian anymore. We still have, institutionally and culturally a lot of baggage from Mm. having christianity as the de facto state religion and that sort of stuff i'm I'm quite steeped in it and you know i i could have you know converted to judaism um i do actually have like jewish ancestry quite quite distantly up the chain but like it wouldn't have been too much of a stretch to decide to reconvert to judaism or i could have become like a white buddhist or i could have just got really into new age spirituality or paganism or whatever but it would have been more work honestly and um and i would have had to have like created something whole cloth that fit myself and try and figure out where i sat within traditions that i knew very little about and it made more sense to try and figure out if there was a way to situate the way I wanted to explore my spirituality and explore my big questions about the world and about humanity through a lens that I was already quite familiar with. Mm. And Yeah, I find that really helpful. I mean, I've, I'm sure I've probably shared it on the podcast before, but it's sort of... I think of it like it's a mother tongue. It's like I know how to speak English. It's language I'm speaking all my life. Um, I might have issues with the English language um, and I could try and go learn another language, but I'm, it's always going to be so much more work, whereas maybe I could like learn to use this f- sort of imperfect language the best way that I can because yes. um, it's kind of where I've got a, I've got a huge head start. Um, but we also have to do some unlearning so that, that can be tricky as well. But yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, no, definitely. And yeah, that that's, I, I don't know. I, th- I think I'm a ridiculously practical and pragmatic person in, in, in some ways, um, even though I think way too much about stuff. Um, like I, I joke and it's only a half joke sometimes that I'm transgender and I'm a woman because it's the most practical way for me to be. Like, uh, gender is an imperfect social construct, which, um, and what 
what is easiest and what is best for me to navigate the world with is to be transgender and to be a woman. And so those are labels that I choose not because, like, uh, I don't know, I've, I've got to tread carefully here because I, I, pe- people um, may not have met many trans people or many queer people in general, but that there is there is a very strong, like, born this way thread through, like, modern queer rhetoric that's at least publicly available. But in more academic spaces and sort of more personal spaces, like there's there's big questions about like, you know, are we actually born this way? Like, did God actually make me this way? And like, um, honestly, I, I, I don't care what the answer to that question is. Um, it's, it's just practical and I live a better life this way. And, mm. um, and so that's, yeah, that, that's, that's the language that I choose to see the world through and navigate the world in amongst. Mm. It's really interesting, Alexis, that you are like uh, uh, clearly a thinker and a very philosophical um, and, you know, like you describe yourself as overthinking. But when it comes down to it, you're also, you just want to live and be in the world in the way that, that makes sense. Um, people might not always put those two things together, but I think that's really cool that you're both um, thinking through things at a deep level but interested in what does it actually mean in this body, in this place, you know, practically to yeah, just get on yeah. with life. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you. It's, uh, I don't know, it's something that I care about deeply. Like, um, uh, and honestly, maybe a large part of that probably comes from like my childhood and growing up and feeling so disconnected from my body, so disconnected from place as well living out in a very tiny country town for um, for a while. And then when, even when we moved back across to the coast, we lived in a collection of like 20 houses that was a 15 minute drive from anywhere. And I was like, you know, an early teenager. I didn't have a car or anything like that. And I was very much my my physical world and my presence felt very much at the mercy of other people and very and i think i spent a lot of time quite dissociated from you know grounding in reality and and so i i don't know i think that's just led to me becoming more and more just like well what what's the real world practical application of this if if there's no practical application of this if this doesn't help me live a, a better life will help other people live a better life than like what's the point of it all we we can Mm. we can dissociate individually in our separate rooms spread out across the globe and think amazing thoughts and do amazing philosophy but like what's the point if we're so isolated and so unable to affect anything about the world around us but yeah Mm. So on that note, what does at this point in life, like uh, embodied um, Christianity mean to you and what does it do kind of pragmatically in terms of um, helping you live, um, you know, as, a, as the best human that you can live into? Yeah, definitely. That, that's a very good question. And I feel like um, that this is... I guess probably a question that I get a lot from LGBT people who 
are not Christian and who hate Christianity for very good reasons and that sort of stuff. Like they, they say a lot of things sometimes about religion and about Christianity that feels like the underlying question of like, well, what's the point? Like, why, why bother with this? And for me, it's, I, I don't know, it really comes down to, I think, hope and I think love and about having a model for good community and a model for honestly like anti-imperial community building and that sort of stuff and about and about looking at ourselves and looking at humanity and looking at the world as more than just animals and more than just atoms and that like whether whether people want to conceive it as you know a a legacy that we leave behind or like a culture that we contribute to there there is plenty that's going on that isn't physical and present and that Mm. sort of thing and and i think that having some some form of spiritual practice is important to being able to understand the way you affect that part of the world. Mm. Helpful. Yes. I, I really like that description. Yeah. So it's, it sort of gives things, it redignifies things that a materialist worldview can kind of, a purely materialist worldview can strip things of uh, the wonder, the awe, the transcendence. And so it's sort of like a layering back over things, dignity, uh, this kind of loftier concepts, goodness and beauty that you can't measure in a test tube. Yes. But they're also sort of undeniably a part of the human experience. Um, And a model for anti-imperial community, um, which we could could spend many podcast episodes talking about all the ways that it has been imperialistic and colonizing, but I guess like at the seeds of it, at the essence of it, as far as, you know, this first century rabbi Jesus of Nazareth um, seemed to demonstrate it was, it was an anti, I mean, have you listened to the episode with uh, Dave Andrews? Yeah. Um, yeah, I I love how he talks about how Jesus kind of started within hierarchy and then by the end he was, he was completely dismantling it. You know, you're my friends rather than um, servants or he's kind of going on a, a trajectory. We could call it the, uh, kenosis is the word that people use sometimes theologically. That's like this kind of emptying, laying down of power, moving in the opposite direction yeah, from what yeah, imperialistic exactly. activity does. Yeah, definitely. And and moving in the opposite direction to what people expected him to be doing. They expected him mm. to be ascending towards power, towards kingship, towards rivaling the emperor. And instead he... He, he starts with more power than he has in some ways and it's mm. and and yet in doing that transformed the whole world like it's it's undeniable that in both its both its extreme positives and its extreme negatives christianity has had massive impact upon the world and to think that somebody who left the world with less worldly power at the very least um then he started with managed to affect such change is powerful. Uh, 
what, yeah. yeah, whether you think he's um, God or not, I, I think there is great power in that. And I think that it's far more fun and far more interesting to decide that he is God and then move on from there. It's like, if that's what our God that. looks like, then what what does that mean for us? Yeah, far more fun, far more interesting. Again, maybe those are better categories than is it proof? Is it is it true? Is it can we you know kind of like again put it through a post enlightenment rationalistic mindset rather than <laughs> um, seeing it as a beautiful, fun, creative invitation to understand the world in the light of that? Yeah, exactly, um, exactly. Yeah. So we when we were sort of texting about this chat, one of the things that you kind of mentioned at the beginning as well is um, an increasing interest in in liturgy. Um, and in, in praying, um, liturgically, for example. Um, but that wasn't, doesn't sound like that was really necessarily part of your uh, original blueprint for Christianity. Um, and I'm interested to talk about this because liturgy was not something that I really grew up with, but it has become increasingly like that. I feel like a magnetic draw towards it. Do you want to share a little bit about your discovery or rediscovery of, of liturgical spirituality and, yeah, what that kind of does for you at this point in time. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I think I think it's fascinating, honestly. Uh, the the fascinating in the fact that people who grew up without liturgy and who are in many ways moving further and further away from institutional Christianity somehow finding their way back to liturgy is just. Um, uh, fascinating to me and super uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I know that I have more questions than answers on this one, um, but that's part of what makes it fun. But the draw for me personally, I guess, is it's very much a connection to tradition, I think, is, um, is very appealing, especially as you, like... Uh, Obviously, I am involved in an institutional church, but it is a very tiny institutional ch- church and quite independent, especially in the context of Australia, and feels quite small at times. So, um, so I think liturgy helps connect us to uh, the broader tradition, both, both like current and global tradition, but also the historical tradition. But I, I also think that there, it's just that real contemplative side, that meditative side of Christianity is found best within liturgy, and especially talking about in the context of prayers and liturgical praying and that sort of stuff. The, the I, um, you know, it, all of my overthinking and all of my busyness and all of the things that I'm doing keeps me like, yes, incredibly busy and incredibly like um, tumbling through the world like a a tumbleweed or something. Um, And I've never been very good at meditating or taking time out or sitting um, in silence and that sort of thing. But I've, I've actually, I swear I'm getting more and more Catholic as I get older and it's <laughs> wild, but um, I bought a rosary actually because I have ADHD and the tactile element of the rosary combined with making up my own um, rosary to pray 
from other liturgical prayers, which um, my Protestant heart um, can deal with a little bit more than the Hail Marys. <laughs> um, just that the combination of like the liturgical words and the liturgical prayers to occupy my mind, the physicality of the rosary to occupy my hands. It's as close as I can get to, to silence, to like being receptive rather than acting and rather than trying to prompt and overthink things. Um, and so that's super helpful in that way. And mm. yeah. And, and the other, the other thing, the other big draw to liturgy that I find is in creating new liturgy that is transformative in ways. Um, I've been thinking a lot about communion lately um, and specifically MCC, I believe, as a denomination has a particular liturgy, but also MCC Sydney has its own particular liturgy surrounding communion. And it's sort of, and it's a ritual that we do every single week, both morning service and evening service in a way that I am certainly not used to as someone who grew up in a Presbyterian church, which again, like if you thought that um, we sung hymns just because it was traditional, you should have seen it when it came time for communion. It's like, who even knows why we're doing this? We, we have to like, um, so yeah. get out the Ribena and like the, the little bits of, um, of, crustless white bread and pass it around and like well we've done our duty for the month um let's see if we can put it off for two months next time without um the presbytery getting upset at us or whatever very different to come around to a place where we do it twice a week um and it and i really didn't understand it to begin with and um, do you think it feels because um, doing it twice a week, it could still be something that feels a bit like going through the motions or doing it because it's what we do. Yeah. And that was yeah. always the criticism. Yes. Uh, like for me growing up, the criticism of more ritualistic or liturgical forms of faith is that it's not like in the spirit or, it, you know, it's more just like religious. Um, do you find, though, that it's not like that? Um. For me, it's not. Uh, I'm sure that there are some people who experience it that way. Um, and I think this is why we just, we need a diversity of churches, wh whether they are, you know, churches in a building with a worship service, like the one that I attend or house churches or whatever. We, we need, we need places where people can find what works for them. Um, mm. I, I don't think everyone would benefit by from having communion every week. But I, the reason why I understood communion at all and why I now understand the point and the purpose of doing it every week is the liturgy around it that we have at MCC Sydney. Um, I attended um, Like Art Uniting on Maundy Thursday, actually, because we didn't put on a Maundy Thursday one and I'm a short walk from Like Art Uniting. And um, it, it's a great church and it was a really great service, but it was the first time in ages that I'd had communion at a church that wasn't MCC Sydney. And it, it was very funny because my brain was just like, 
well, you didn't say the words. You, you, you didn't say the important words. And the important words aren't right. like the, the, um, the instantiation or like any of the stuff that people might like associate with communion and that sort of stuff. But at MCC, Sydney in particular, we always say as part of communion that, um, that the preamble is that like God has loved you, God is always loving you, and God will always, always love you. So know this with absolute certainty. You are accepted, you are forgiven, and you are free. And there is something incredibly powerful about sitting in a church congregation that is mostly made up with of LGBT people and allies, queer folk and allies, and having a leader up the front who is usually queer themselves and and just letting everybody in the room know that regardless of their experiences, regardless of what people have told them, God loves them. They are accepted, they are forgiven, and they are free. It's like... That's so beautiful. Uh, it, there's intense power in it, and it's... Yeah. Yeah. And I always think to go back, you know, I asked this question around, does it, does it become lifeless because you do it every week? I would have thought that, you know, back in the day, but I think it was because I failed to recognize that the power in ritual is not really ever about single moments. I mean, sometimes it might be, sometimes you might have a very transcendent single moment experience, but the power is in the repetition and the marinating and the soaking. And if you hear every week, for years and years in a row that you are loved, you are accepted, you're forgiven, you're free, will you internalize that enough that you believe it? Exactly. I think, you yep. know, it's not about the one-time thing. It's about, and that's why I'm really drawn to it as a community, you know, um, and we we kind of dabble in it at, at Meeting Ground, our little church. We dabble it in a, in a very way that like seriously liturgical people would probably say you're not doing it good enough and then people that don't like liturgy would be like why are you even bothering but we do it in this sort of mishmash you know misfitty way but i think of it as how can we kind of continue to to sort of be exposed to certain messages certain ways of doing things certain um yeah language that over the long term creates in us like a like a foundation that's there to kind of fall on when when you need it because um, you've you've just been exposed to it for so long yeah exactly exactly definitely in 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 my my silly little rosary prayers um i um prayer pray like just the lord's prayer basically um the our father um a a Slight, slightly different version and a slightly different um, translation than you'll find in most Bibles, but it, it's it is the same one, um, and and like praying it all the time. Sometimes it becomes wordless noise that um, like or meaningless noise, which helps my mind tune out and just zone out and be at peace. But other times it's like. I've never sat so long with the one example of Jesus sitting down and saying, this is how you should pray. And like the word choice and what it all means, it's so short. And yet if you 
keep on coming back to it over and over and over again. Like it, it sounds, it sounds silly. And, um, and I absolutely would have hated this kind of thing, like even five years ago, but when you come back to it over and over again, you really do find layers of meaning. It's oh, just like, I'm 100% with you. I remember reading, uh, someone say the Lord's prayer is like shallow enough for a child to play in deep enough for elephants to swim through. And I think that's so true because it has, if you're looking for it, like six different roles that God can kind of fulfill in our lives, you know, provider, forgiver, protector. Um, it, it has these very simple statements that, as you're saying, like there is an incredible depth if you, if you want to go there. Um, so I'm with you. Um, <laughs> and I found similar, like Psalm 23 was like my lockdown liturgy yeah. where I would walk um, every day around my street during kind of lockdown and just say Psalm 23. And particularly as, you know, um, yeah, I mean, everybody was having various concerns, but self-employed person, uh, lots of concerns thinking just about like where, where do things keep coming from? And so to just kind of ground myself in the Lord is my shepherd. I, I don't, I lack for nothing um, was really good, good for the soul. Um, I love your rosary bead um, story. And I've got here on my desk, um, Bruce McCauley, who was on the podcast previously gave me this uh, um, pocket labyrinth for people that can't see it. It's basically a piece of paper with like a different texture that you trace your finger over and you can do a labyrinth while just sitting at your desk. So that's another great little like bringing the contemplative in a very small, manageable, tactile way. Yeah, um, definitely. That's every so day. Cool. Yeah. So tell me a bit about uh, preaching and the course you've been doing. And um, I know you got some thoughts around um, the, I guess, the formal trained roles in the church and then whether or not, you know, how that shifts over time when we're coming into a time where it's kind of like, yeah, do, do you need a theology degree? Um, so, yeah, so this is a poorly constructed question, um, but share some of your thoughts around lay preaching and the need or not for formal education theologically these days. Yeah, definitely. Um, no, I think, I think it's a good, it's a good question and it's, yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I, I think as a lay preacher and also possibly, I guess, I'll, I'll channel the same energy on this podcast that um, if I leave people with more questions than I've answered, then I'm doing well. Um, but I, I think, yeah, I, I've been, I've had a couple of opportunities to um, preach at MCC Sydney, which has been really good. Um, it's, Within MCC Sydney, it uh, I it felt not ne- it didn't feel necessary, but it felt like it would help um, somewhat to be able to point to at least some course or something that I had behind me to um, be able to preach more often and more regularly and that sort of thing, but also it interests me a lot. Like, you know, I, I, I think too much about things and what is academia, if not just thinking too much about things and putting the words on the page. So, um, so I, I definitely like thought about doing formal training, like 
partially as a way to satisfy my own curiosity, but there is also like a strong, a strong sense of it sort of a bit, a bit what we talked about where like Jesus has um, that starts off with more power than he has and then gives it all away. And, and in the same way that people talk about that, like Picasso mastered uh, realism before he developed his surrealist style and that sort of thing. It, it feels like in many ways it would be easier to be working on the margins and pushing the boundaries of what Christianity is if I had some sort of formal education or some for, sort of formal um, or, or even ordination or like anything like that, ha- having some sort of recognition within it. And I do think mm. that MCC as a denomination has focused a lot on formal ordination and MCC has some of the strictest requirements of any denomination I know of how much academic training you have to go through to become um, an ordained um, minister within it. And I do think that as quite a, like, you know, as a denomination, as a specific calling to work with the queer community, I think that there is a certain power and legitimacy that has been found in going for that sort of requiring um, the academic training and that sort of stuff, which I think can be helpful and I think can push things forward in good and interesting ways. But I also, um, I'm also just, I don't know, I I think having ADHD makes it quite difficult to stick to long-term projects like um, higher education, that sort of thing. And I tend to just be um, like a a lay person in everything I do. Uh, I'm a software developer, but I have no engineering degree. Um, Right. I I taught myself how to do it. A lay software developer. (laughs) It's interesting, isn't it, though? Like, because I think part of what you're saying, like, I think you're not in any way devaluing the value of... um, going deep in terms of education and research and academia. But it's interesting when the pathway, like if you want to be working on the margins of or on the fringes of faith, then it's not really like like all of that time, money, energy, it doesn't necessarily clearly translate to any sort of job security. Yes. Yep. Or anything like that. Yep. And I think that's a big like that's a huge question for Um, the future of the church, particularly for those that are like being drawn towards smaller, more localized, maybe less um, institutional expressions. Uh, Obviously there are plenty of people that are committed to like defending and trying to, you know, firm up the institution. But I I sort of feel like, how do you get the, um, the deep thinking and value that comes with doing, you know, a master's or a PhD and then put that in spaces where you're most likely going to be working another job, and it's it's most likely going to be that you're you're um, not yeah receiving any tenured position for it. Yeah, it's uh, it's really that's like a bit of a catch twenty two, isn't it? It is, yeah, definitely, and yeah, it, and I uh, I I think I think you've captured it perfectly. I I don't. I think that the acad- 
the academic side of it, like the, the, this for me, the eight week course that I've just done has really helped a lot situating the thoughts that have been flying around my head for quite literally years at this point, situating all of those thoughts and all of, um, all of the conclusions I've come to and all of the questions that I have discovered along the way within a very long and very broad tradition of asking exactly the same kind of questions and never really having any answers and just finding more and more questions. And it's like, and being able to situate yourself and the way you're thinking within that tradition is really helpful. It's also incredibly helpful to be able to talk with people who are asking these sorts of questions and going through periods of deconstruction or reconstruction or to, to use all of the fancy buzzwords. Um, but, uh, but people who are asking the big questions, knowing that kind of stuff to be able to situate them within the tradition or be able to like point them towards ideas or books or resources that might help them make sense of things mm. is like really incredibly helpful and incredibly useful but it's so much time and so much effort and when and when such a high level of education is sort of the bare minimum and the entry into being able to have these conversations at all mm. is where I think we really, yeah, we, we start running the risk of perpetuating the same stuff that has locked people like me out for a very long time of feeling like mm. I am unable to ask these questions and, and well, that's exactly what you're things. saying at the beginning that, that as a 12 year old, you felt like to be able to, to have access to those questions and to have a seat at that table, you you had to get the special knowledge. Exactly. And yeah. it's sort of like we want to say everybody has something to add and everybody can be part of the conversation and you don't have to be part of, you don't have to join the secret society while at the same time valuing like the wisdom and the depth and the work of the tradition as well as those who have put in, like there have been so many brilliant uh you know, PhD um, guests on this podcast. I look through it sometimes and I'm like, oh man, like uh, there's a lot of just people that have, they have put in the time in some absolutely brilliant, um, brilliant work that, that has breathed new life into the scripture and the tradition and ecclesiology, all of that. Um, but yeah, like it's kind of like, how do we have that while empowering each person as they are to bring what they have to ask their questions, to be part of it. Um, it's a lifelong pilgrimage yeah. of learning together. Exactly, exactly. Like, and yeah, and it's, and the world we live in makes it so incredibly difficult to make enough money to pay rent and pay the bills doing the things that we just want to do, which we feel deep down are actually improving the world. It's um, if we're not improving the world in a way that makes money for someone, it's very difficult to convince other people to um, support us in those endeavors and that sort of thing. And, mm. and so being able to opt out from all of, from having a full-time job and 
being able to live the honestly the lifestyle I've gotten used to at being employed full time. It's been a long time since I've been um, an unemployed university student, and even back then, it was it wasn't enough money to live on. Um, and I think it's probably gotten harder just as government spending has dried up and that sort of stuff, as well as I, I know what it's like to live comfortably now and not be worrying about where my next meal is. And so to go to give all of that up to do the things that feel important is difficult. And uh, it's like a little bit of a cop out in some ways, I guess, but uh, I'm, I'm also an artist and there is no way that I can do my art without a job um, because I like doing installation art and installation art costs an awful lot of money. And there, there is, there is quite literally no way for me to pursue that without spending money on it. And, and so it's like, and it, it just feels like being caught in a cycle of that sort of stuff. A lot of the time it's like, can't, can't opt yeah. out because you can't do what you want to in the ways that, and also in the ways that I've developed, I've developed an artistic practice. I've developed a way of being in community and a way of engaging with ministry adjacent work and that sort of stuff that is, that sort of depends upon in some ways having an income separate to those Mm. and it would be a complete reinvention which isn't impossible and like you know how i i'm the sort of person where we can talk again in six months and um i i will have probably just thrown it all out and you'll find me like you know (laughs) in a seminary somewhere but um, yeah well i we probably have some similar personality traits because I'm a, yep, yeah, I'm a starter and a dreamer. And uh, <laughs> um, this is, I mean, I, I love this podcast, but this is like podcast number seven or eight for me that, um, you know, they I look back at all of them and they were all good practice. But um, yeah, so we'll, we'll check in with each other in six or 12 months and see where we're at. Yeah, definitely. I was thinking as you're saying that about, you know, like if we were to think about our lives as like permaculture gardens and in a permaculture garden, you're trying to get like a circular system where there's no waste and everything feeds everything else and kind of things run downstream. And it's almost like um, you, when you describe your life, there are similarities, obviously differences, but similarities to how I've tried to structure, you know, there are things I do that are more financially viable but they help me to be able to do the other things that are more just creative and artistic and it's kind of like trying to create that little circular economy in my own life um, rather than just being purely growth or you know um, capital driven and I just wish that the whole of society was like that I know that it you know there are so many people that just are um, they don't have the luxury of those choices. Yes. Um, But I just think that wouldn't it be awesome if everybody worked a a part-time amount to be able to help fund, whether it's the extra study or the extra creativity or the extra things. Cause often then it becomes this thing of like, Oh, the only way 
that I can do that is if I somehow become like super successful as a musician, otherwise I'll just stop doing it. Yeah. And yeah. I just think if we all had a little circular economy permaculture lives, we'd be able to do all these meaningful things. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously again, this requires like a whole overhaul of our society and many structures, which um, we can just slowly tap away at from the fringes. But yeah, I mean, something to aspire towards, I think for people to find the things that have value and, you know, live a full-time life without any particular thing necessarily having to be the full-time all or nothing thing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, especially like, I'm very much the type of person who needs that as well. Like I, I cannot do one thing constantly forever. I just, my, my brain isn't wired that way. And every single job I've been in, I get to the 12 month mark. And unless I'm keeping myself way too busy in my non-work life after 12 months, I just hit the mark where I'm like, well, what now? It's like, Mm. it's not that, it's not that the work's dried up. It's not that the team's gotten worse or whatever. I just like, but that there's got to be more. There's got to be something else. There's like, what's the new project? What's the new thing going on? And it's just, yeah. yeah. And I, it's, it's not, not rewarded very well in the, the current state of things. I, mm. I think that more people than ever are definitely like cobbling together careers and existences out of lots of little gigs and lots of little projects and things like that but i i don't i think people are doing it more out of necessity than they are out of sustainability or because that's actually a good option i think it's more just that it's harder than ever to be able to find things that are successful enough that they support other stuff without needing to monetize everything, every single step along the way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it can be pretty brutal out there. Sorry. Um, I, I'm, I'm probably, um, you know, I'm the one who's employed full time here. I'm probably just talking over the top of you and, uh, and what you experience on a day to day basis. So, uh, oh, it's all good. I have, uh, I don't know anybody who has set things up quite the way I have. It's pretty eclectic and it works for me and have my moments of um, serious self-doubt and questioning. But I also have many moments of thinking I am just like incredibly lucky to have the, um, yeah, no day looks quite the same and I'm somehow have five or six different jobs um, at the same time. Anyway, that's a totally separate thing that doesn't really matter in the context of this conversation. I really love what you bring um, to our Facebook group and to our kind of online community. And for me, like the podcast as content is great, but I'm ultimately more interested in building connection and community and spaces for people to, um, yeah, you know, find new ways of, of being and living and relating to others. Anyway, so I always ask people to give their final word for the misfits, but I just want to set it up that you already are kind of helping to guide and nurture our little online community in a few different ways. So as you think about that space and maybe people listening that might want to join that space, what would be some of the things you'd want to speak into that group of people kind of finding their way um, as misfits? (sighs) 
yeah, that's that's probably the biggest question of them all. <laughs> I'll try and keep it succinct. <laughs> Take your time. I, I do tend to go on, but um, I think I don't know. I I've I've refound my faith, and I have become so deeply connected to Christianity again because I realized or realized is a strong word, discovered that I could think that the dominion of God, the kingdom of heaven, the connection to divinity isn't something waiting for us at the end of a long life. It's something that we can experience now. And it's something that we need to experience together. And it's something that we can only experience when we are a part of some, something trying to be more, trying to look after people, meet material needs, meet spiritual needs, and just look after one another. It's like that to me is the closest I think we can get to experiencing what the gospel is. And if that's something that you think you can find in Christianity, please come, come back, <laughs> come back, keep with us. You know, I think it's, it's there and waiting for us, but we need to help usher it in. And if all of that seems like too much work and you're not at the stage where calls to action are what you need right now, just know that above all, you are accepted, you are forgiven, and you are free. So beautiful. Thanks, Alexis. Spiritual Misfits podcast is brought to you by Meeting Ground, a church for the misfits. We know we are only one small and humble faith community, but we're making this work in the hope that we can encourage and empower other people in similar spaces. If you haven't already done so, jump on our website, spiritualmisfits.com.au and join our mailing list to receive the Sunday message. No spam, no sales, just weekly encouragement around faith from the fringes if you know someone who would benefit from hearing this episode please share it and consider giving us a rating and review on your podcast platform or social media of choice we'll catch you next time until then take care and be kind